Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 107. It's verses 1 and then 23 through 32. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you, the sovereign God of the universe are the one who calms the storms. And Lord, we're going to a text today here in Luke where we, we find another reminder of that as the disciples encounter a very unusual occurrence on the Sea of Galilee and they witness your mighty hand and they're reminded, and we're reminded as well that this one this Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. Guide us as we go to the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we'll be starting at verse 22. As you turn there, last Monday I, I started hearing these rumblings about a snowstorm that we're going to get four inches, and I laughed. I said, oh, come on. I said, April Fool's was 20 days ago. I know we're still in the month of April, but really? Then I noticed our neighbor, this 55-year-old that's setting up sheets and things on a ladders and chairs. And I thought, why is she building a tent in her flower beds? That's unusual. I thought, I'd better check the National Weather Service. And sure enough, it said a snowstorm was coming. And I thought, no. This is not January, this is April. And then they said, no, no, no. And I thought, oh, I have the wrong city. I have Anchorage, Alaska. And no, it was indeed Carmel or Westfield or wherever we are. And I said, this is horrible. And unfortunately, despite all the preparation and all the warnings from the National Weather Service, I was shocked. And Tuesday night was very depressing. <laughs> Storms come, and there's an inevitable one that's found here in Luke chapter 8. And the text, we're going to read in verse 22, it says, One day Jesus got into a boat with the disciples and said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake, we're in Capernaum. We're going to go to the uh, side that is predominantly Gentiles where they're headed. And so they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now a violent windstorm came down on the lake and the boat started filling up with water and they were in danger. And they came and woke him and said, Master, Master, we're about to die. And so he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They died down 
and it was calm. Then he said to them, where is your faith? But they were afraid and they were amazed. Uh, those afraid and amazed are used independently of each other. Elsewhere in Luke, this is the first time we find them combined in response to what Jesus has accomplished. And they said to one another, who is this? that he should even command the winds and the water, and they obey him. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, first part of Luke 8. It was a lesson on, on what it really means to respond to this one called Jesus. And now we come back. It, 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 Luke is reiterating, who is this Jesus? Let me show you. In 822 to 917, we're going to look at four events, two this week, two next week. Today we're going to be looking at God, Jesus, his, his power over nature and over the demonic realm. And next week we'll look at over the disease and over death itself. So that's where we're headed as we move through this portion of Luke's gospel, reiterating this Jesus of Nazareth, ah, he's God in the flesh. This is who we see. And so this first part, and if you have notes there on your chair, or if you're following online, you can see the notes to the side there as we follow. We see in verse 22 that we are on the lake. The lake is the Sea of Galilee. I remember the first time I saw this this body of water. I envision this enormous, you know, like Lake Michigan or Lake Superior. It's only eight miles by 13 miles. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not that large. And we're told that they've entered a fishing boat. Now, thankfully, in 1986, archaeologists discovered a first century boat that was stuck in the mud on the northeastern quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that boat even today in Israel. It was 27 foot long. That's what they estimate most of the boats were. And if the average height was 5 foot 5 and 140 pounds in the first century for men, you could squeeze about 15 fellas in this boat. So it gives you an idea of what we're looking at here. This, this, this boat, which once was the pulpit earlier in chapter 8, is now going to become the object lesson to the sermon, right? And we're told, where is Jesus? And it says in verse 23, he has fallen asleep. <laughs> Jesus might appear exhausted and disinterested in the journey, but he is there. He is the Savior. He is the Prince of Peace. And Psalm 121 should have rung loud and clear to those disciples. It is he who keeps Israel, and he will neither slumber nor sleep. As he said, this is going to be an object lesson. And as he's asleep, the text tells us a violent windstorm. Matthew's tell of this story tells, he uses the Greek term for earthquake. It's a tsunami. Now, storms, you've probably heard, in the midsummer on the Sea of Galilee, this is not a rare thing. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. But what is problematic at times for the Sea of Galilee is it's surrounded by hills, and on one side there's this deep ravine that cold air comes and hits the warm air, and it's not uncommon in the midsummer to have storms where waves hit up to seven feet. Uh, I had a friend who, she's a guide in Israel. She said she had a group of naval officers on a tour and the storm arose out of nowhere. And she said they were scared spitless. <laughs> These are seasoned fishermen. They're very familiar with storms on the Sea of Galilee. 
and they are scared. The text is very clear. As this, this tsunami breaks, and it's atypical, I would argue, even of this time. And notice what Luke tells us. First of all, he tells us it's a violent windstorm, but he says the boat is filling up with water. Literally elsewhere, it states it's, it's full of water. It's sinking. And thus, the text tells us they were in danger. These seasoned fishermen are hopeless. Did you catch their response? I have a feeling they were first trying to navigate the waters themselves. Get the buckets. Get the water out. Steer it this way. But it soon became obvious they were helpless. And so they came and they woke up Jesus. I mean, how can you be sleeping? <laughs> master, master, the urgency in the tone is clear. Our boat is full. What did Jesus tell them in verse 22? Let's go to the other side. Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> he told you you were going to the other side. So why are you freaking out now, right? Hang in there. Trust the Lord. Psalm 107, the, the text that Andrea just read, talks about it is God who calms the storms. And it's very similar to this, and we'll get back to that. But Jesus, what does he do? He gets up and he rebukes. It's the same term used when Jesus spoke to the demon and cast him out in chapter 4, or when he caused the fever to leave Peter's mother-in-law later in chapter 4. In other words, it's a display of Jesus' power in the midst of the disciples. Boom! And you have two questions that are raised in the text. Did you catch that? The first of, of these is Jesus asking them, where is your faith? In other words, you could render it this way. You should be more trusting. I told you we were going to the other side. You were given the secrets to the kingdom. As we saw in the parable of the sower. And earlier, I told you you would be fishers of men. Right? So you, you should have understood all this. And Jesus was frustrated, not based upon their inability to understand, but rather, I would argue, in their lack of confidence in Jesus' ability to rescue them. And think about it. We've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, the casting out of demons, healing a paralytic, raising a widow's son. And what more evidence do you need? <laughs> But isn't it true, when the storms come in life, our theology is often clouded. Truth becomes fleeting. And that's the situation we see here. One commentator writes, their fear of the storm overwhelmed their commitment to Jesus and their confidence that he did not care for them. A reflection of their lack of faith that God could be at work in Jesus to protect them even during the threat of a raging storm. I told you it was an object lesson. <laughs> it is no coincidence, Jesus said, get in the boat, we're going to go across the other side and I think I might take a little siesta. <laughs> Where is your faith? The first question that's asked, the second one is by the disciples and they say, who is this masked man? Right? Who is this? What is most shocking is not the magnitude of the storm. Mark's gospel tells us it's a great storm, and then he says, and it's a great calm. 
It's not the magnitude of the storm. It's not the disciples' presumptive questioning of Jesus. In fact, it, it, it's a bit condescending, depending on how you render the Greek. Or the immediate calming of the raging disturbance. I think the most stunning and shocking moment is when the, the disciples who've been walking with Jesus fail to recognize his identity. Where have you been? <laughs> have, you, have you not seen? And, and don't you know your Old Testament? In the Old Testament, time and time again, God is depicted as one who calms the storms. Psalm 107, the text we look at. Listen to Job 38. On, or who shuts the sea when doors, when it bursts open? Who, who has made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and sets bars and doors? Implication, God. And, and you disciples, with Jesus in your midst, you've missed it. You've missed this one who is God incarnate. They've missed the deity of Christ, which is so clearly seen in this text and fail to recognize it. Notice, they ask, who is this and he, that the one who commands the winds and the water that obey him? And the answer is God, right? Sadly, the question is answered in the next scene. And this is what I want you to look at, starting in verse 26. So they sailed over to the region of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. We have now entered, if you were to follow this on a map, we have now entered into Gentile territory. This is predominantly Gentile. On the north quadrant near Capernaum, that area, Magdala, that's predominantly Jewish. Tiberius, uh, not so much. Uh, that, that's a whole other story. Herod builds a, a city on top of a cemetery, and that freaks out the Jews, and we won't go there, and that whole story in history. But predominantly the northeast quadrant is Jewish. This region is Gentile territory. It's part of the Decapolis, which was a 10-city confederation. They had a bit of an autonomy. They, they, they answered strictly to Rome. They didn't respond to the Herodian uh, kings or the, even the Roman governors of that area. And it says, Jesus stepped ashore and a certain man from the town met him who was possessed by demons. Now, Matthew tells us there's two uh, demoniacs and uh, my advisor Grow, uh, through my studies, she'd say, oh, here's another error in scripture. No, 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 no. Luke is going to highlight the conversation that this demon, this demon-possessed man has with the Lord. That's why we only see one here. He didn't tell us there wasn't two. Matthew quickly passes through the scene. We can coincide the two very easily. But Jesus meets this one, and notice it was possessed by demons. For a long time, this man had worn no clothes. And had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and shouted with a loud voice. Here's the answer to the question. Leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. It's one of the most highest Christological statements in all of Luke's gospel. It's certainly the highest we've seen thus far. And I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had started commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, so he would be bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. But he would break the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. 
Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, we're legion. Because many demons had entered him, and they began to beg him not to order them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. Another indication, this is not a Jewish territory. <laughs> uh, they don't raise pigs. <laughs> one of the, the bummers of going to Israel, and there's not many, but the one of them is there's no bacon, and that's a real bummer. Yes. The, demon, the demoniac spirits begged Jesus to let him go into them, and he gave them permission. So the demons came out of the man and went into the pigs, and the herd of pigs rushed down the steep slope into the lake and drowned. Now watch this. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they rejoiced. No, they ran off and spread the news in the town and countryside. So the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. They found the man whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told him, the man who had been demon-possessed has been healed. Then all the people of the Gerizim and the surrounding region asked Jesus to leave them alone. For they were seized with great fear. Second time it's repeated here in the text. So he got into the boat and left. The man from the demons had gone out and begged to go with him. Uh, it's an imperfect, it's, it's like, it's an ongoing begging. I'd like to go, please let me go. I'd like to go with you. And notice what Jesus says, it sends him away, return to your home and declare what God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole town region what Jesus had done for him. Going back to your notes there, letter B is authority over the demonic power. Again, this section is showing that Jesus is divine. He is God. We see it with an, in nature, with a storm, and now we see it with this uh, demon-possessed man that has met Jesus there. Actually, let me rephrase that. It is Jesus who met him. Jesus went across the other side. Why? To meet this man. <laughs> Isn't that like our Savior? He goes out of his way, knowing full well we're going to go through a storm so I could see this guy. It's similar to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus has, says, I, I must needs go through Samaria. No Jew goes through Samaria. Why are you going through Samaria? So I could meet the woman at the well. <laughs> and so Jesus goes out of his way to meet this man. I'm reminded of Isaiah 65. If you're writing notes, this is a great text. Isaiah 65 says, I was ready to be sought. This is the Lord speaking. By those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. A people who provoke me. Sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Who sit in tombs. And spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in their vessels. This is the Lord who sought. He sought us. If you know Jesus as your Savior, at the end of the day, it is he who called you before the foundation of the world. This demoniac, what's he going to do <laughs> apart from the Lord's intervention? And so it is the Lord who meets this man. And, and did you notice the description? He's possessed by demons. In fact, he's possessed. The demons say our name is Legion. Now that's 6,000 troops. I, we don't know. It's certainly many, is it not? He says uh, we're possessed. He's naked. He's homeless. He lives among the tombs. Yuck. 
He's isolated. He's ostracized. He's socially unacceptable. He's uncontrollable, as the text tells us. Matthew tells us he's vicious. And Mark, in his account, says that he would frequently cry out and he would bruise himself with stones. In other words, self-mutilation. It's all seen. This event, if nothing else, should tell you Satan seeks to destroy. <laughs> Stripping a person of his dignity and eradicating as much of God's image as possible is Satan's modus operandi. Sin... Young people in this room, hear me out. Sin is pleasurable for a season, and only for a season. It will enslave you, it will harm you, and ultimately, it will destroy you. That's what we see here in this scene. It's a sad story. Here's this man. I, I, you don't even see the parents. They're not even involved. They gave up on their son a long time ago. All the hopes and dreams they had for Johnny are gone. We should say Alexander. It's, it's a Greek. It's gone. All these expectations. The man is enslaved to demon possession. And so you see this conflict. And in fact, there's another conflict going on because in verse 28, you're not sure if it's the demon speaking or the man that's speaking. Did you catch that? There's this tension. And the demon's response indicate that they not only recognize Jesus' superiority, they know, I, I, not chuckle, but you're aghast when you hear people belittle the name of Jesus. I'm, I'm going, even the demons know who he is <laughs> and they tremble. They fall at the feet and secondly, the, the, even in this text, it's clear they're conveying hostility. Did you, did you catch that? Leave us alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High. That term, Most High, is used by Gentiles throughout Luke's gospel. And who do they appeal to? They, they beg to his father. Don't do this. Please don't send us to the abyss. I wrote, despite the fact that these demons were destroying life, instilling fear in the community, and laying waste everything in their path, their power and their number were no match for Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that great? Jesus asked the question, he says, who are you? This is not because Jesus didn't know. Jesus knew full well what resided in this man. He seeks to reveal, I would argue, publicly what's going on in this guy. This isn't a psychological disorder. It's not that he's addicted to drugs. And certainly those all have effect and can be intermeshed. Not I'm saying they do, always do. But this case, it's clear it's demon possession that we have going on here. This man is possessed. And by Jesus recognizing it, there's also a sense of authority. Give me your name is the idea that's being brought out here. Notice what the angels are afraid of. Look what the text says. And they began to beg him not to order them, verse 31, to depart into the abyss. I think this is a reference to 2 Peter, which talks about Tarsitus. It is the <laughs> region, I wish we had more time to develop this, but I believe these are, are demons that have crossed the line beyond even what the demons have done. And these are, are awaiting final judgment. 
And, and they're saying, don't send us there. Instead, they want to go to the piggies. They look for something that they can find. Say, Let us go to the pigs. Now, I've taught this text long enough. I've heard students say, well, that is just awful. How could Jesus do that to all those pigs? I'm going, man, you got salted bacon. It's fabulous. What are you upset about? Well, let me give you a few things to hang on your beak. First of all, to the Jews, the pigs were unclean. They were an abomination. Secondly, you need to know in a Greco-Roman world, pigs were used for sacrifice in the pagan worship. And I think Jesus is saying, you worship me, not through them. I'm the one who is sovereign. But let's go on. I think there's other reasons. Third, it should also be noted that the man's welfare was far more important than a herd of pigs. Men and women were created in the image of God, not Porky or Bobo. Jesus stated, even in, in, in elsewhere in Luke, that, that men are more precious than sparrows. At the end of the day, Jesus died for human beings, not animals. And we live in a twisted world where we're more concerned about animals suffering than we are aborting babies. <laughs> yes, it's a sad day. You know, we're living in an age, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's taught theology for years. He said, you know, the day when sexuality is made immorality is made legal and applauded. The next step is insanity. And I said, you know, that's exactly where we are. You see it here at these tombs at Gerizim. And let me give you another reason why the pigs, careful, it's not, Jesus wasn't responsible for the pigs going into the, the water and drowning. It was the demons. Don't miss that. And then finally, let's not forget how costly evil is. The loss of the swine, Daryl Bach writes in his commentary, graphically pictures the cost of purging evil as will another death on the cross. Hmm. It's a sad commentary, indeed. But here we have a man who is restored. What happens to the demons after they go into the water? The, the text doesn't tell us this. So I'll let you figure that out. But what it does tells us is the state of the man after he has been restored. Did you catch this? Look what the text tells us. What do we see? We see a man who is demonless. We see a man who is sitting at Jesus' feet. That's what you would expect of students and, and where they would be found with their rabbis. He's in his right mind. He's clothed and he's healed. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't want you to miss this. It's easy to look at this demoniac and say, oh, that's just awful, horrible thing. But, you know, difficult to relate to. Ephesians 2, 1. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived according to the world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience among whom also you all formerly lived and your lives were, you, you filled the cravings of your flesh, indulging the desires of your flesh, and in the mind were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, that demoniac is a perfect picture of us. 
prior to salvation. Because look what the text tells us. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, crossed the sea. Even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved. And he raised us up with him and what? Seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We have a new position. We got new clothing. And we're in our right mind. And we have the opportunity to bask at Christ's presence. That's what the Lord has done. <laughs> Instead of rejoicing in the restoration of this man, they are more concerned, I would argue, about the economic downfall that just has occurred. <laughs> this man they could not control, this man who has disturbed their community for years, is now restored and they're upset because they lost the piggies. It's a sad commentary on this group of people who should have responded. The, the man who's been restored knows what to do, doesn't he? He says, hey, I want to go. I, and he begs to follow Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, I, I, I've come to my own. That is the Jewish people. And so he tells this Gentile who's been restored, you go to the Gentiles and share this good news. And do you notice what the man stated? Look what the text says. Jesus tells him, go and declare what God has done for you. What does the man declare? This is what Jesus has done for me. Luke is highlighting it. You should hear it. It's screaming through the text. God and Jesus are one. This is the one who calms a storm. This is the one who can cast out demons. And so we look at this text and we're reminded that this man who wanted to follow the Lord, the Lord says no. And at times the Lord tells us no. If we're walking in obedience, I would argue it's never punitive. It's his desire that we follow him. I mean, after all, God wants us to do his will more than we do, right? I remember going to seminary and you could test out of Greek. And I had taken two years of Greek in my undergraduate and I did what it took to get the A, thought I knew it. No problem. Took that entrance test, a test out of first year and I did not pass. <laughs> I thought my world had come crashing down. I was embarrassed. It was, it was awful. I thought, this is, what in the world? And because of that, having to reset through first year Greek, God used that to instill a love for the language. And I would have never dreamed that later I would be teaching Greek at an undergraduate school. And because I was teaching Greek, I met Michael Venter as a student in my class. God knows. And I, I wish we could have had the follow-up from this man. So tell us, how did it go sharing the gospel to all those living in the Decapolis? Well, I know one thing. We know in the early church there were many believers coming from the Decapolis. Can't help but wonder, Mr. Alexander was able to tell others what God had done for him. There are a few principles here that I want to tease out in your notes. The first of these, the storms or life are inevitable. You say, well, thanks, Hoffaditz. I didn't need to hear that this morning. <laughs> Christianity does not promise to be a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of life. Jesus knew there'd be a storm. Oh, they could have walked around the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They could have waited until morning. 
He did not exempt the disciples, nor did he offer an explanation. It's been said, Christianity is not sit and soak. Even sponges need to be squeezed. <laughs> Indeed. The storms of life are inevitable. They also can be very distractive. And this is in your notes. The danger for the disciples was not based on the threat of the storm. It was rooted in the disciples' unbelief. I doubt very seriously they went to the Lord first. As I mentioned, they were probably trying that Harvard try. We can take care of this. We can do this. Alistair Begg makes this great statement. If we are to cultivate habits of private prayer and devotion that will weather the storms and remain constant in crisis, our objective must be something larger and greater than our personal preoccupations and longing for self-fulfillment. Proverbs 3, we're told, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps, the sea broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these, the writer states. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you, when you lie down, you sleep will be sweet. Really, the disciples should have been asleep with Jesus on the pillow. Jesus was right there. <laughs> Do not be afraid of sudden, sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. The storms of life can quickly distract our attention from the Lord. This week, I have a friend who pastors in Crawfordsville, and they had a young man who was in a severe accident. And on Tuesday, the day that we had the snowstorm, a family had a storm. And this is the email from the mother that my friend forwarded to me. He says, Tuesday was the worst day of my life. This is the mother speaking. This was the day I received the news that even though Parker's body was healing beautifully, his brain was so severely damaged that he would never be the Parker we all know and love. All he would even be able to do is to lie in a bed he could not move. He could not open his eyes. He could not communicate. And right now, the only thing keeping my little baby alive is the ventilator. With this in mind, Jeff and I have decided that Parker's ventilator will be removed on Friday, April the 23rd. And then listen to what this mother states. The miracle we have been praying for is not what we thought, but the miracle is that my Savior, die for my son's sins, and he knows him, and he will be with him. <laughs> Parker will be going to heaven, and he'll be with Jesus. She said, please pray. All we need is God's strength and peace at this very sad time. God is the only one who will be able to help us through this most difficult period. Wow. That is someone who understands, yeah, the, the storms of life, they're distracting and they're inevitable, but we have a Savior who's in the boat. <laughs> we have the God Almighty who can calm a storm, cast out demons, and next week we're going to see heal broken uh, vessels and, and, and raise the dead. This is our Lord. This is the one we serve. 
It's why Samaria Blackwell, who, who was killed, as we mentioned even last week at the FedEx, this 19-year-old, this is what her mother said this last week, although that dream has been cut short, and we believe that right now she is rejoicing in heaven with her Savior. And then she states, on this side of heaven we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We recognize that for her, life has just begun. One second of glory will outweigh a lifetime of suffering, won't it? The storms of life, they're inevitable and they can be distractive, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a job loss, a wayward child, financial crisis, a divorce, chronic illness, a shattered dream, loneliness, rejection, whatever the storm is. In the midst of the upheaval we are facing, we must not lose sight of the Lord. We must trust rather than become anxious. We must depend on him rather than falling into despair. We must rest in his presence rather than becoming sidetracked by our surroundings. We must not allow the chaos of the storm to distract from our view that the creator of the universe walks with us. He's the one who made the storms. He's the one who can control them. And that leaves us to point three. The storms of life serve as an opportunity to witness firsthand the power of God. Think about the disciples. Because of that track across the Sea of Galilee that night, they got to see the creator of the universe in action. <laughs> they got to experience a visible display of his handiwork. And they had that great opportunity, though they went kicking and screaming, to grow in their spiritual knowledge and understanding, right, of who he is. Psalm 107, the text that was read earlier, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Robert Murray Machane, a pastor in... Dundee, Scotland, in the 1800s, writes, You will never find Jesus so precious as when the world is one vast howling wilderness. Then he's like a rose blooming in the midst of the desolation, a rock rising above the storm. The National Weather Service issued a storm warning last week. NWS, I'm going to give you something to think about. NWS Note the Lord's presence, welcome the Lord's wisdom, and savor the Lord's glory. Let me walk through those again. The next time you hear a storm being issued by the National Weather Service, think NWS. Note the Lord's presence. Hebrews 13, he promised never to leave us nor forsake us. That's if you know Jesus as your Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, he's not in the boat. You need to turn to him. Instead, you're like the demoniac who's enslaved to sin. Bend your knee. But note the Lord's presence. Welcome the Lord's wisdom. James 1, right? When we face the trials and temptations, we run to the Lord for wisdom. And then S, savor the Lord's glory. Job 23, one of my favorite verses. But he knows the way I take, and when he, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Isn't that great? The storms of life, they're inevitable, and they can be very distractive. But oh, they are incredible opportunities to witness firsthand God Almighty at work. <laughs> Father, 
I look across this room and I know some have been facing fierce storms this week. Some, the storm just keeps, to, keeps going on, never seems to end. Whether it's a lingering divorce, a wayward child, an economic issue, job matters. Lord, we thank you that you're in the business of calming storms. You are the God who cares deeply. You didn't have to have those disciples in the boat. You didn't have to cross the sea. But you did it because you loved those disciples and you loved that demoniac. And Lord, you love us. And so, Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us when we are distracted and help us to cling to you and have that glorious opportunity to see, yes, our Savior is your Son, God Almighty. And we thank you in his name.